Hi, friends. Welcome to the Natasha Crane Podcast. I am so honored today to be joined by Dr. Erwin Lutzer to talk about his newest book, No Reason to Hide. This book looks at the toxic roots behind the alarming symptoms of a nation in spiritual freefall and why our faith must empower us to engage rather than retreat. I'll introduce you to him in just a moment, but some brief news first. We just announced the fourth location for our Unshaken Conference with Elisa Childers, Frank Turek, and me. We're going to be in Tucson, Arizona on September 23rd at Calvary Tucson church. Those tickets, as well as the tickets for Nashville, which is where we're going to be on November 4th, will be on sale next month. But in the meantime, the tickets are on sale right now for our Southern California Unshaken Conference, which is going to be held on May 6th at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. So go to unshakenconference.com for more information and to get your tickets. If you're in one of these areas, you are not going to want to miss this event designed to equip and encourage you to stand firm in this challenging culture. Well, Dr. Lucer is Pastor Emeritus of the Moody Church, where he served as the senior pastor for 36 years. He's an award-winning author of many books, including We Will Not Be Silenced, and the featured speaker on three teaching programs that are heard on more than 1,000 national and international radio outlets. He and his wife, Rebecca, have three grown children and eight grandchildren and live in the Chicago area. Well, Dr. Lucer, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you on. Wonderful to be with you, Natasha, and I thank God for your ministry. I think that you are impacting a lot of lives. You are looking at culture biblically, and we certainly need that today. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's an honor to hear from you. Really appreciate that. I'm so excited to talk to you about your book, No Reason to Hide. It is a wonderful book that addresses so many important topics in culture. I wish we could talk about all of them today, but we'll select just a few to really dig deeper on. Uh, but just let's start with what you have on the back cover. The back cover headline asks, will you be complicit, complacent, or courageous? So let's just start there. What would each of those reactions look like for a Christian today? Why are those the key distinctions? Well, to be complicit means that you give the culture whatever the culture wants. And we see churches doing that. As a matter of fact, in the book, I have a chapter on how there are those who are identifying with liberal Christianity, liberal evangelicalism, submitting to the culture. So that's to be complicit. To be complacent is to oppose what is happening in the culture but to not say anything about it and pretend it doesn't exist and live in your own little bubble. Now, what's so important for us to recognize, Natasha, is that we did not ask for this culture war. This culture war has come to us. We've not been looking for it, and we have to interact. And that's why I put the other category of courageous, where we are willing to say, here we stand, we're willing to suffer for Christ, we're willing to stand for truth, and our convictions will not be overturned by the pressures of the culture. I love that point because I feel like a lot of times Christians kind of chastise one another and say, you know, don't go, don't get into these culture wars. You know, let's not pick fights with culture. But like you said, the culture wars have come to us. Absolutely. I'm curious in, from your perspective, you know, you served as senior pastor of the Moody Church for 36 years. So you have seen a lot of ideas and movements that have really come and gone in culture. How is what you're seeing today that drove you to write this particular book different than maybe what you've seen in past decades? Well, what I did is I looked around the culture and asked myself, what are those issues that Christians cannot avoid, 
that we must have a voice to speak to, and we must look at it, of course, through the lens of Scripture. So I talk about such things as the lie that we are God and show where that has led us in terms of the individuality of people. I can be whatever I want to be, which is, of course, nonsense. I speak about issues such as collective demonization, where if you're put into a wrong category, you're canceled, how the culture works along with the media and so forth. And then some other interesting topics that oftentimes are not discussed in a book, namely um, issues regarding race, certainly, but how do we respond to those who want to say that uh, we have not owned our past? What does it mean to own the past, and what are the implications? And then I could go on, but I'll just mention one other. One of the most interesting chapters to me is the one on propaganda and how language is used. And the reason for that is because I, years ago I wrote a book about Hitler and uh, propaganda, and so propaganda has always had a special interest for me. And remember, the purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality that even when confronted with a mountain of evidence against it, they will not change their minds. So I discuss these cultural streams, the way language is used so that we might be aware of it. And then, of course, I should also mention transgenderism. I try to help parents think through what do you say to a child who comes home from school and thinks, mom and dad, I'm trans? How should we look at that? So these are the kinds of issues. And then I will mention one other. The last chapter has to do with suffering for Christ, rethinking our view of suffering, because we've always thought that we should be supported by our government and by our courts. But as those days are fading away, we need to rethink what it is to stand for Christ and take the consequences. Well, let's get into some of those individual topics. Um, I, I want to especially spend time on chapter three because it is so foundational for understanding a lot of what is going on today. The chapter is called, Will We Expose the Greatest Lie That Is Our Nation's Most Cherished Delusion? You touched on it just a minute ago, but I want to dig into this. Explain what you believe our nation's most cherished delusion is and why do we love it so much? Why do we love it so much? The greatest lie is, of course, the one of Eden, you shall be like God. And uh, you have a man, for example, like Rousseau, who stressed the fact that human nature was absolutely perfect. The reason that people were corrupted is society corrupts people. And then I mentioned men like Marx. You can't avoid him, because in his view, God was no longer the ruler, and he saw history through oppression. Same view of human nature. People are basically good. Capitalism is what corrupts them, Cor the corruption of suppression. Now, obviously, as all of us know, he was opposed to God because men oppressed their wives, parents oppressed their children, they took them to church, and God was the ultimate oppressor. So he had to do away with the ultimate oppressor. And so you have, again, the deification of the individual. On and on, you get to Freud. Suddenly, sexuality becomes the centrifugal force of who we are and what gives us pleasure. And there should be no restraints, even for children, 
when it comes to sexual pleasure. Now, all that is filtered into our culture, of course, and the whole idea is this, I'm answerable to nobody except myself. And Natasha, these are devastating consequences. I use an illustration that I heard John Stone Street give. Just imagine this. You're lost in a city. If you have a compass, you know which direction is north, and therefore you know what the other directions are. But let's suppose that you have a magnet in your backpack, and uh, therefore the compass always pointed to you. You'd have no idea if you were going in circles, what direction you were going. You would just be confused, and that's our present generation. And so the whole exaltation of the self, as if to say, I can determine who I am. I'm born Bert, but I want to be called Betty because I am in charge of who I am. And that has filtered through and is absolutely devastating to our culture. Yeah, and I and I think that I, I talk a lot about this also in Faithfully Different in terms of the authority of the self. And people love that because the Bible tells us why people love that, because we all want to go our own way. We all want to resort to the authority of the self. So as Christians today, we find ourselves in this culture where the culture is telling us exactly what we want to hear by our very nature, that we want to go our own way. So it's a very compelling lie. And so I, I love how you how you phrase that in your chapter. You know, uh, just to add this, that's why theology today, oftentimes, even in our churches, is desire-driven. And Paul predicted this in the New Testament when he made it very clear that the time is going to come when there will be those who will rise up who will teach according to human desire. And so our desires become what drives theology. And, you know, to your point, the big devastation that is taking place is we have not acknowledged the biblical interpretation of original sin, the corruption of human nature within us. I know I'm ahead of where you're probably going, but even let's talk about race. The whole idea is that there is structural racism, and there may be, but really race is something external, People don't see that the seeds of racism exist in every single human heart, regardless of skin color. And so we always have to come back to the biblical doctrine of sin in order to understand what is happening in our culture. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I do want to talk about racism for sure, but I want to dig in a little bit more on Marx because I think that all these ideas that we're seeing today, they all sprout from this the Marxist view of reality and how that evolved over time. And you talk about that in the book over decades, how then the Frankfurt School takes some of those ideas and extends them to cultural identity. So that's not just about economics. It's not just about class. And we see that. And then you end up today with the fruits of all of that. So I really want to get in a little bit more to the, the Marxist background of this and help people. You say, uh, for Marx, the greatest oppressor was Christianity, along with the nuclear family. That is such an important 
point for people to understand because it does inform so much of how the modern far left sees Christianity and the nuclear family. I remember, for example, that the Black Lives Matter movement, they the organization specifically, had a What We Believe page that stated, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. And that wasn't just a random comment that they made. It was perfectly at home in this Marxist way of thinking. So I'd love for you to help people understand what is it about Christianity and the nuclear family that Marx found so oppressive and that's carrying through to today. Well, regarding the family, as I mentioned, you know, men oppressed their wives, parents were oppressed by going to church, they oppressed their children. But here's another reason, and Lenin, I think, even made this clearer. What happens in a family is you pass your inheritance onto your children. And that, of course, is unfair because Marxism is all about equality. But if you have equality, it has to be imposed by the state. So the state has to determine what equality really is. And uh, families are inherently, they have inequality. Inequality among opportunity, inequality regarding money. And so what the state has to do is to level everything so that um, everybody is on the same playing field. But it has to do so through laws, through coercion, through bullying, and that's exactly what you happen. What what happens? And maybe we won't get an opportunity to talk about this. But when you think of Marxism, you think primarily of economics, which is true for Marx because he believed that that's what really drives it all. And the capitalists suppress the others, and there was a lot of suppression. But his answer was the devastation of many many countries. But here's the point. Regarding economics, in Marx's view, the state actually owns everything. As a matter of fact, um, there's nothing outside the state. Everything is within the state. There is no opposition to the state. And that means that you don't own anything. The state divvies out all the goodies, and it does so according to equity and equality. And so, All human initiative is crushed when it comes to such things as um, socialism. There was a kibbutz in Israel that was run according to socialistic principles. They had to stop it because, you know, the people who slept in were rewarded just as much as those who got up early in the morning and worked, and they discovered that it was a paradise for parasites. So Marxism comes to us in a different form. It comes through cultural Marxism, and many of our listeners have heard of that. What it means is there's a form of Marxism in America that says we can bring about a Marxist state, but we don't have to shed blood like in other countries. We don't need to shed blood. We can do so very easily by capturing the institutions, one institution after another, slowly, and we can bring it about. And one of the things that has to happen is that children, talking about the family again, it is very important that children not be educated by their parents. They have to be educated by the state so they are properly indoctrinated. And that's why another reason why the nuclear family has to be destroyed. 
so many things I, I would love to unpack about that. And I want to come back to that last point that you made after after we hit on more of the equality of outcome. I think it's worth mentioning that this isn't an idea that the far left is trying to hide. I recently read this lengthy article, and it was actually called Why We Should Abolish the Family. This is a modern day article. The subtitle was, quote, the family is a conservative project that limits human flourishing. The family must be abolished. And the core argument of this writer was that you can't achieve equality unless you give everything over to the state, just as you're saying. That's exactly what she was saying, that it's unfair. The nuclear family is inherently unfair because of all the factors that you were mentioning. So if we can just hand everything to the state, they can redistribute, make sure that everyone is equal in the outcome. So while I realize that most Christians don't think we should get rid of the family, I have seen many buy into this idea because of secular pressure today that people should have equal outcomes, that that would be fair. Can you address that from a biblical perspective? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible suggest that we should be working toward equal outcomes, equity, as people call it today? Well, you can't work toward equal outcomes unless you take away people's freedom. When you look at the Bible, you discover that uh, even within a family, you can have the same parents and you can have children who are brothers and sisters, same environment, same opportunities, and you're going to have unequal outcomes. One is going to prosper. He's going to invest. Somebody else is going to go with a different um, aptitude and a different direction, which might be okay. But if you're looking for equal outcomes, that cannot be done. It is totally contrary to the whole idea of freedom. And speaking about the Bible, we can just see on the pages of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, there's no such thing as equal outcomes. Now, of course, the rich should be generous in helping the poor. Governments can have a certain limited amount of uh, power to be able to bring about some kind of equal opportunity, which we would certainly support. But you cannot have equal outcomes. For example, my wife and I were in Russia many years ago, back in 1988, and we discovered that um, doctors in a hospital were paid very little more than the people who cleaned up the hospital with mop and a pail of water. They were getting uh, just a little less because of equality and because of the need for equal outcomes. Well, you can understand why there was a dearth of doctors and why the healthcare system was in such shambles. You cannot have equal outcomes and have a prosperous nation. You cannot have equal outcomes and at the same time hope to bring about some kind of equality unless you have strict laws. You know, Natasha, just the other day, a young millennial was talking to me about socialism versus capitalism, and he says, well, capitalism is very greedy. I said, young man, if you want to see greed, go to a socialist communist country. Of course there's greed in capitalism, but if you think that somehow socialism is going to take the greed out of a person's heart, are you kidding? In those socialistic countries, there is tremendous greed and manipulation and the breaking of laws just to try to get ahead. So let's not be naive when it comes to these matters. Yeah. But equal outcomes can only be done 
by coercive government. Yeah, it's a very utopian view to think that everything is going to be made perfect and that the human heart is suddenly going to change if we have the equal outcomes that supposedly are achieved through socialism, which obviously is not actually the case in, in practice either. You know, th this subject of equal outcomes often comes up, especially in conversations about racism, which is a subject that you discuss at length in the book. And oftentimes the so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion policies are designed to get society closer to these equal outcomes. But you say they actually fail to help people. Help us understand why is that the case? Why It sounds good, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but in reality, in practice, why is it a problem? Well, you know, one of the illustrations I give is a football team that is run according to those schedules. So you have to have a certain amount, number of whites, a certain number of blacks, a certain number of Asians. And then, of course, what you also need is some trans women who now identify as men so that you bring about equality and uh, then see how your football team goes. Now, you might want a football team like that if all that you're interested in is uh, showing diversity, but you're not going to win any games. So what happens is all over, I mean, I quote in the book statistics, I give examples of schools that are dropping many of their requirements for graduation, even requirements for math, in order to bring about this wonderful thing called diversity, equity, and inclusion. The human heart is such that unless we are willing to be in competition and do our best, you're going to find a lot of people who are going to take advantage of this. And of course, we of course see that already in society should not be a matter of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It should be a matter of equal opportunity. And then what we have to do is to hold people accountable to do their best. Now, when I go through that chapter, and I think it's one of the longest in the book, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is the name of the chapter, I point out how that what you have is racism based purely on the color of one's skin. That certainly is true of the book White Fragility. If you believe in meritocracy, that is to say people get ahead of merit, then you know you're a white supremacist and on and on. And the impression is given that you can take people and judge them by the color of their skin and not according to the content of their characters, Martin Luther King advised us to do, but rather it's a matter now of skin color. And this is so devastating because we have to realize that, let, let me put it this way. You mentioned at the top of the program that I was pastor of Moody Church for 36 years. At any time, and we did several surveys, we had people from 70 different countries of origin worshiping with us, and we took delight in that because the Bible says in Revelation 5 that there are going to be people from every tongue and people and nation. So we were unified in Christ, trying to do what we could to bring about reconciliation at various points. Critical race theory tears all that apart. Now critical race theory begins shouting, blaming, shaming, and if I might put it in a single sentence, and I mention this in the book, 
Critical race theory keeps tearing apart everything that Jesus died to bring together. Think, for example, of Colossians 3.11. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free. And then it says barbarian or Scythian, but we are one in Christ. Now, Paul didn't say Greeks become Jews, Jews become Greeks, Scythian become Scythians become barbarians. They retained their ethnicity, but there was a transcendent unity that they had in Christ. And my contention is we should be working toward that. Critical race theory destroys it. And biblically, we would say that we don't have a race problem. We have not a skin problem, but a sin problem. And uh, therefore, our society is being torn apart by these kinds of radical ideas, which comes to us from Marx, because remember Marx, we talked about it. You have the oppressed and you have the oppressors. So how do you tell who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed? You go by skin color. And then you do all that you possibly can to divide those two, which is exactly what Marx would take delight in. Absolutely. And when you gave that analogy of the football team, I can almost hear Christians who maybe are seduced by some of these ideas. They're attracted to the idea of equal outcomes. I can imagine some of them saying, well, isn't it, more, isn't it a more Christian thing to not want to win the game? Maybe we do just want diversity for the sake of diversity. Maybe we don't need to win the football game. What would you say to Christians who would say well, that? Well, it depends. Nobody needs to win a football game. So if you're talking about a football game, well, you don't need to win it. And I am, of course, from Chicago, where the Bears won a football <laughs> game way back in the 1980s. And they have proved since then that nobody has to win a football game. But when it comes to airline pilots, you see that being affected when it comes to the army. Winning is all what it's about. It's not about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is the best people, the most highly trained people, the most highly skilled people that should be put in place. So this is not a small matter that we can say, well, you know, we're trying to emphasize equity, diversity, and inclusion. When it comes to those kinds of businesses, what we need to do is to see how important it is. By the way, I can't help but throw this in, you know, speaking about how standards are being lowered. Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> I talk about uh, university, that is um, Princeton, where you are told that if you believe that there's only one right answer in math, you are a supremacist. Now, there is a professor there from Romania who teaches math, who has written about it and against it. His uh, essay was online. It was entitled, There's No Such Thing as White Math. But here's what I want to point out to people. Do you realize how silly this is getting? Can you imagine these students coming from Princeton and they're beginning a woke bank in your community? So you put in $1,000 and then you go get it and say, well, you know, that's your truth, but there's more than one right answer to math. Natasha, we are a nation under judgment because we are really insane. I mean, we are irrational as a nation. And unless we recognize that we have to get back to God, 
and that which is sensible and common sense, everything is being fragmented. That's a hugely important distinction, I think, between the things like winning a football game and when you're talking about pilots. I've actually been reading a lot of stuff recently about what's going on in the aviation industry and the problems with the new standards, how they're lowering things. And that is leading to a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the news with with the airlines and near misses and air traffic controllers. So I think a lot of times it's easy for people to say, well, you know, if we can just have a little more diversity, equity, inclusion in these areas, then this is better for everyone. But when you actually look at how it affects the big things, like you're talking in banking or in education, these are are having drastic implications for people's lives. And as a mom of two 14-year-olds and a 12-year-old, it breaks my heart to see that the educational system is lowering standards for kids who are struggling, taking standards away instead of saying, hey, these are the standards where we should have all kids and then helping to raise kids to those standards. It breaks my heart that this is how we're approaching the education system. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on education and what's going on there, but that I, I think that this standards issue is going to become something we will look back on in a couple of decades and say, we really messed this up and this hurt in a generation. I hope that we still have a couple of decades that when we'll be able to look back. It seems to me that there's so much that is happening because America's basic core of shared beliefs and convictions. We always had our differences between the parties politically, differences of opinion, but there was always this belief in the basic decency and preference to the nuclear family. There was this basic commitment to uh, trustworthiness. At least we had it as an ideal And now, as all that is beginning to fall by the wayside, the implications are huge. Yes, they they are. And I'm grateful for people like you who are willing to take a stand and write books like No Reason to Hide that are helping to really open eyes to these things. I I think that a lot of times Christians can be very well-meaning in wanting to support some of these these initiatives like supporting quote-unquote anti-racism, because a term like that sounds like, well, of course we should be against racism. But activists today mean very different things by that term. Can you tell us a little bit more about what people mean by anti-racism and why this is not an ideology that Christians should subscribe to? Well, I can only answer in a single sentence, and that is that anti-racism means that we have to fight racism by becoming racists. That certainly is the thrust of White Fragility, the book that is gaining so much attraction. What you have to do to fight racism is to be a racist. So you have to be against whiteness. Whiteness has to be evil. So people have to be judged on the basis of the color of their skin. And then you are finally fighting racism. The answer, of course, is not that. Biblically, I already explained the unity that there is in Jesus, but also the recognition that racism, the seeds of racism, exist in every human heart. It is not true that simply one category of people are racist and the others aren't. We are all racist potentially. That doesn't mean we're all racist. It means that 
the seeds are there. And uh, what we have to do is to deal with those issues in a constructive way, but we can't do it by shouting to one another across racial fences, by blaming somebody, especially somebody who had no responsibility for what happened. And so we have to approach this in a reasonable way, working together. Anti-racism keeps pushing us apart. True reconciliation keeps trying to bring us together. You have a chapter called, Will We Compromise with the Christian Left? And I think that we can all picture fully progressive churches on the far left that have adopted basically every secular ideology, especially when it comes to abortion and uh, sexuality specifically. But there are quite a few well-known evangelical leaders and pastors today who do hold biblical views of sexuality and abortion, but they embrace a lot of elements of critical race theory to varying degrees. It's sort of like a Christian left light. It's not all the way over, but they adopt a lot of these ideas that we've been talking about. How much of a concern would you have about a pastor or leader who maybe falls into that category? Do you see that as an agree to disagree space, or would you say that that still is a danger to the church? Well, in that chapter, I tell the story of an actual church, and this church was unified. It had diversity, and the pastor would preach about Christ. There was worshiping together and so forth. But after the death of George Floyd, what happened is the pastor, who was white, began to get insecure, thinking he might be accused of racism, so he began to emphasized that whites were guilty of all these things. The black population was essentially innocent. And so, to quote the words, if I remember in that chapter of the email that I was sent, whites, in effect, stand in the corner over here. You are to be blamed for everything. And so, once you begin down that path, you no longer have Christian unity. Now you have finger-pointing without any real resolution. And so what you find is that there are many who go into diversity, equity, and inclusion, the kind of things that we think about when we think of critical race theory, and they may have good intentions, but they're always dividing and always blaming. And this, of course, divides churches. We should discuss these issues. Pastors can preach preach on racism and racial with a view of racial unity, but not with a view of tearing his church apart. And so that's the point that I think I'm trying to make in that chapter. And I, I really appreciate how you address that also. You you know, one part of the book that I loved is when you talked about America's past and the dark spots, and you talk about, um, you know, the quote-unquote stolen land from Native Americans and obviously a legacy of slavery. You don't ignore these dark parts of America's past, but you make the case that America is worth preserving. You say, quote, let us not tear down America, let us live up to its ideals. That's so different than the popular sector narrative today that basically sees America as irredeemable. Why do you think so many people today are fixated on the mistakes of our past rather than working toward those founding ideals? Well, first of all, many of our brothers and sisters in the black community 
they have suffered, certainly because of racism, slavery. There still undoubtedly is racism going on in many ways. So it's easy for us and them to fixate on that. And I say that that has to be examined. But at the same time, to be critical of America, as one person said, one teacher that I quote, I think in Pennsylvania, telling her students, you are living on ceded land, land that begins to, uh, that, be, that uh, was owned by the Indians. You are living on stolen land. All right. Why don't we look at other countries and see whether or not they are living on stolen land? Anyone who knows anything about history knows that wars and taking land and stealing land, that's the way every single country that exists today has existed in the past. It continues to exist that way. So to single out America as if we are evil because we are living on stolen land. The simple fact is that the tribes that lived here oftentimes moved around. Nobody knows to whom we would owe money. And I don't think that we should pay any reparations, by the way, for very obvious reasons to uh, people of the past. But the point is that what are we going to do about this idea that we should feel guilty because we are living on stolen land? One of the things that Saul Alinsky here in Chicago did, he was, of course, a Marxist who greatly influenced things. I think he died in 1977. But one of the things he would not allow his students to do is to compare America with other countries. Because if you compare America with other countries, America will look too good. And the whole emphasis needs to be to tear America apart, to tear it down, so that um, we might be able to bring about the chaos that would bring about a revolution. In fact, I talked to somebody who worked with Saul Alinsky and he said, we had good plans to help the under-resourced communities here in Chicago. And Saul Alinsky said, no, don't solve any problems, use them. So that, of course, was emphasized. The other point in that chapter that I make has to do with collective guilt. You know, uh, to what extent are we to be accountable for what our forefathers did? And if I might just get on to the subject of reparations for a moment. Who owes money to whom? My parents were raised in the Ukraine. They were Germans, but they came to Canada. So I actually was born and raised in Canada. I'm now a naturalized citizen. So my history has no part of what went on here in America 150 or 200 years ago. So to whom do I owe money? And not only that, but all kinds of other problems would arise with this idea of collective guilt. Just to bring this discussion to a quick co conclusion in answer to the question that you asked, the whole idea of collective guilt, that's why the Jews were persecuted for 2,000 years, especially during medieval times, even during Luther's time, because they were known as the Christ killers. And because they were known as the Christ killers, because their generation said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. As a parenthesis, I need to mention that God didn't say that, but rather the Jewish leaders did. But be that as it may, 
they are still paying for their collective guilt because they have to own their past. My, oh my, what would happen if all of us had to own our past? This, of course, is contrary to Scripture. Certainly, there are implications from generation to generation, but it says in Ezekiel and elsewhere, and I quote this in the book, that each person is going to be accountable to God for their own sins. And once again, the idea of stolen land and collective guilt is intended to tear us apart so that any core values that we share have to be destroyed I think this is not to go too far off course here, but it just makes me think of the all the changes to the educational system today. A lot of parents that I speak with, they think that the only problems they need to look out for in public education is the sex ed class. They think, well, if I can just opt out somehow out of that, everything else is fine. But they're rewriting history also. They're rewriting it from this perspective of collective guilt and looking back at history in some very specific ways that take away from the ideals, not just as a necessary corrective to say these are the problems we've had in our past, but to rewrite things from a completely different perspective. And that's just one example of how this is changing the educational system. So everything you're saying with respect to history is so critical for people to understand. You know, there are a lot of Christians who would hear this interview and or look at your table of contents and say, oh, well, all that stuff, that's that's politics. Christians need to stay out of politics. We're just going to keep sharing the gospel and God's going to take care of it all. I hear this all the time. Uh, how, how would you respond? What would you want people listening to this to understand if that's the perspective from which they're coming? First of all, as a pastor, I've never endorsed a political candidate or a political party, and I certainly don't intend to do that. But for somebody to say, first of all, that my book is all politics, actually it isn't. I mean, there are things that impinge upon politics, obviously, Transgenderism, you know, I have a chapter on that. That has become political. Abortion is political. The whole LGBTQ revolution is political. So for a person to say, I'm going to live in my little bubble and just let the culture do what the culture is going to do, you can get by with that if you don't have any children. If you're not in the workforce, you can just let the culture pass you by and you can have that luxury. But if you're a businessman, the other day a businessman texted me and asked me whether or not he could sign this document. It had to do with calling people by their preferred pronouns. And uh, we could discuss that too, but I know we've already covered a lot of ground in this interview. But the point is, he can't avoid this issue. So if you're reading this and thinking, well, I can avoid it, I would say, good for you. But the people in the pew who go to work Monday morning, they can't avoid it. Parents who send their children to the public schools, they can't avoid it. And I show how in the schools here in Illinois, especially, children are being shown pornography in, in the most horrible, horrible way. So, you know... We cannot avoid these issues unless we live in our bubble, content, waiting for the Lord to return, and hoping for the best, and thinking we aren't going to concern ourselves with these issues. Christians across the board can no longer ignore what is happening. 
I agree with you 100%. And at the end of the day, in light of all of these issues, you say that Christians have no reason to hide. That's the title of the book. So what would be your summary of the whole thing? Why should we not hide from all that's going on? Well, maybe I can go to the last chapter of the book where I talk about suffering for Christ. Jesus said, blessed are you. And we have to rethink our view, Natasha, because the average American thinks that if even if we were to have a revival, for example, this would be so wonderful because then we could go back to our own comfortable way of life. We'd have governments and laws that supported us. That's not the history of the church. The church has always been a minority in the midst of a majority pagan culture. So in answer to this, I have to say, in fact, I was just reading in my devotions this morning, Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if you're a follower of mine, don't hide. There's no reason to hide if you think in terms of eternity. So live for Christ wherever he has planted you, whatever vocation you are in, and just be faithful to the end. Because blessed are you if men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Great is your reward in heaven. So yes, oftentimes in order for self-preservation, Christians have hid. Well, either we hide or we witness to our faith and take the consequences and consider it to be a badge of honor. Well, that's a a powerful way to end this. I so much appreciate your book, No Reason to Hide. I will be putting links to where you can find the book and to find more about Dr. Lutzer online for everyone who would like to look into this further. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been such an honor to talk with you. So much just amazing information that you're giving. Really appreciate it. So much, Natasha, and you keep up the good work. And thanks so much to everyone who's listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please help me get the word out. Tell some friends about it and take a moment to rate and review it on your favorite platform. Also, don't forget that I also have a new weekly podcast, new episodes every Wednesday with my friend Elisa Childers, where we do short form episodes, just 15 to 20 minutes each to help equip you to be bold and courageous in today's culture. It's called Unshaken Faith, and you can find it in all of your podcast players.